You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Good evening, Valleydale and friends. Great to see you tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. A number of years ago, there was a very important man named Albert. He was very important and influential, but he had a major problem. At age eight, Albert developed a stammer that continued into his adult life. When he was, uh, or in 1923, Albert married Elizabeth, and the two began their life together. And the first couple of years went well, but about two years into their marriage, uh, something happened that was painful for both of them. In October 1925, Albert was speaking at Wembley Stadium in London in front of 100,000 people. And he got up to speak, and, and he struggled to get the words out and was even frozen at times. And it was a painful experience for Albert and for, for the audience. And his wife had, had tried to do everything to help him overcome this problem. He had seen a number of therapists, and they were unable to cure him. But Elizabeth went out and found one other therapist named Lionel Logue. Lionel was uh, from Australia, and he was working there in London. And Elizabeth went to see him, and Albert didn't know where that she had gone to do this. And, and she just said, hey, can you help my husband and, and would you come to our home, and would you work with him? And Albert said, uh, you know, I, I, my game, my rules, my turf. And uh, essentially saying, I, I work in my office. That's where I work best. And if you've seen the movie The King's Speech, you've, you've seen this conversation unfold. She said, what if my husband were the Duke of York? And he said, the Duke of York. And, um, and they began conversing, and he essentially said, no exceptions. He said, I can cure your husband, but in order for this to work, there has to be total trust and equality, and that happens best in my consultation office. You see, there were no exceptions, and, and even though she was frustrated, it seemed like she ended up saying, when can you start? You see, Elizabeth at first wanted her way, her rules, and her home, but she ended up submitting to Lionel's way. Uh, we often want our way in life. Uh, sometimes we even like to sing the Frank Sinatra song, I, I Did It My Way. Uh, we often like to get our way, but we, as adults, we know we don't always get our way. What happens when you don't get your way in life? Now, you can see in children when they don't get their way, they'll sometimes just pick up their ball and go home or go to the room, and we, we smile, and, and that's funny, but, it, but no one smiles when adults do that because people expect more out of adults. But how do you respond when you don't get your way? Do you, do you get angry? Or do you get silent? How, how do you respond? Tonight we're going to look at a man who was very important, and he did not get his way. And the Bible says he went away in a rage. But thankfully, there was another way. And he submitted to God's way, and then he got what he was looking for. And we have the same choice. We have our way, and we have God's way. And our way will always end in frustration and disappointment. But there's another way. There's God's way. And God's way is always the best way. So tonight we want to talk about submitting to God's way. And we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5. We continue our study on Elisha. We've seen Elisha in a number of places. We've seen him in Gilgal. We've seen him in Mount Carmel. We've seen him in Shunem. We've seen him ministering to, on the international stage to kings. We've seen him in a home, ministering to a family, God using him to raise a boy from, from death to life. 
And now we see him again interacting with a king and with a very important person. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, the main character in this story is introduced in the first verse. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. Naaman's name means gracious. It comes from an, an Aramaic word. And I want to share with you just four things right here in the first verse about Naaman. First, Naaman had a high position. It says he was commander of the army of the king of Syria. Now, Syria was located north of Israel. It's also called Aram or Aram, but uh, the Greeks called it Syria. And so since then, we've, we call it Syria. Uh, at times, Syria was, was an ally with, Egypt, with Israel, and at other times, they were an enemy. But apparently, this was a time of peace. They were an ally of Israel at this point. So he was a commander. Of, uh, he was the commander of the army of the king of Syria, probably the number two man in the country. He had a high position. But second, Naaman had high esteem. It said that he had high favor there with his, with his king. That phrase literally means lifted up with respect to the face. His face was lifted up before the king. Now, it was just a phrase for respect. Well, if you keep reading, why, why wouldn't the king have great respect for him? Because God had given the, the commander victory. You read that. You say, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So God had given him favor, and because of that, his king, uh, his boss, respected him. Now, this also shows us the sovereignty of God in the affairs of the world. You see that in, uh, in 1 Kings 19, 15, where the Lord told Elijah to anoint the king of Syria. See, God works in our lives individually, but he also works on the world stage, even when we don't realize it, even when we can't see it. And, even, you know, in the book of Isaiah, years before this happened, Isaiah 44, 28, God said this about Cyrus, king of Persia, who would release the captives in Babylon to come back to Israel. It says, he, God says, he is my shepherd, talking about Cyrus, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. He may be a pagan king, but he is God's shepherd. He is in the palm of God's hand. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. God works in the lives of people, but also he works among the nations, whether we understand it or not. Third, Naaman was a mighty man of valor. He was a valiant warrior, according to the Hebrew. He had a decorated military career. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Naaman was the one who killed King Ahab back in 1 Kings chapter 22 at the end of the book there. He was the one who did that, according to Josephus. So he was a decorated officer. Yet in spite of all of these, there's one more trait that we're told about Naaman. Look at the very last part of verse 1. But he was a leper. He had all these things going for him. But underneath that decorated military uniform was a body suffering with leprosy. Now, leprosy, as we know it today, did not really become developed until the time of Alexander the Great. So this would refer to not clinical leprosy as we know it, but some type of a skin disease, maybe a white spot on his skin or some type of flaking skin, uh, a swelling, a scab, or something like that. Uh, we think this was probably in the early stages because he's still, a still able to go out in public. He's not isolated. But nonetheless, it was terminal, and it was serious. And it bothered Naaman, and he, he was a leper. It would only get worse. 
And so although Naaman is the main character in the story, in verse 2 we're introduced to a number of other characters. There's at least 10 characters in this story. It's such a, a fascinating story. We're introduced to a young Israelite girl. It says, Now the Syrians, verse 2, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. She was probably a teenager, and her parents had, had probably, we don't know for sure, maybe they had been killed, and she had been taken back to Syria, and she was working for Naaman's wife, and she's there serving in his home. We, we don't even know her name, but God used this young Hebrew girl to show compassion to Naaman. You, you, you see this here when, when she said, he, she, the Hebrew girl said to Naaman's wife, verse 3, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So God used this unnamed woman to show the love of God and compassion to Naaman. Now we're also introduced to Naaman's wife here, although she doesn't say anything here in our story. But the young girl had been taken captive. And instead of being bitter and angry and trying to uh, cause harm to the Syrians, She's trying to help them. She's trying to help Naaman. She wants Naaman to be healed. She doesn't want him to suffer from leprosy. And, and so she, she introduces him to the prophet, Elisha. She goes, boy, if, if, they could just, if he could just get to the prophet, oh, God would, God would heal him. And, and, and she, she has a fear. Uh, she fears Yahweh and believes that God, God will heal him. Now, right here, this introduces the main tension in this story. How will a foreigner like Naaman, who has two things going against him, he's not an Israelite and he's a leper, how will he meet the prophet Elisha? That, that's the main tension in the story. How are these two going to get connected? And that, that, that's what you, the problem here at the beginning of the story. Now, we could ask the, the, the same question today. How are people in Birmingham, how are people all over the world going to hear the gospel how are people who've never heard the name of Jesus or never bowed their heart to Jesus, how are they going to hear about Jesus? It's the same problem. You know, it sounds like Romans 10, 14, part of the verse that says, and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? You see, the way people get connected to Christ is they hear about Christ. That's our job. That's our job as followers of Jesus is to tell other people about Jesus. And that's how people get connected to him. It's their decision at that point. But Naaman's wife took, took this young girl's word seriously. And she must have reported this to Naaman. Say, hey, Naaman, hey, I think we may have a solution for you for your leprosy problem. You need to go to Israel and see the prophet. And so Naaman goes to his boss. And we're introduced to, to Naaman's boss, which is the king of Syria, which was probably Ben-Hadad II. And he wanted his top military commander to be healthy. So he, so he says, I'm going to help you out. Naaman, I, I will send you with a lot of money, and I'll send you with an official letter, and that will pave the way for you as you go to Israel. Now, apparently, this king must have thought, well, you know, Elisha, the prophet, works hand-in-hand hand with the king. He's under the king's authority, so I'll send a letter to the king, and the king will just make sure that this happens. He'll make sure he'll delegate it, make sure it happens. Now, Naaman had an, an enormous amount of wealth with him. Look at Look, look there in verse 5. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. 10 talents of silver would equal 750 pounds of silver. When King Omri, back in 1 Kings 16, when he, King Omri bought Samaria, 
He only paid two talents of silver. So Naaman is taking five times the amount that Omri bought a whole town with. He's taking to pay for this healing, plus 150 pounds of gold, plus 10 rolls of cloth or 10 sets of, of clothing. Clothing was very valuable back then. I read that if we converted this financial gift into our terms today, $750 million. You see, at this point, it, it just seems Nathan has every, or Naaman has everything going for him. He's got the money. He's got the official letter from the king. He's going to see the prophet. What, what, what could happen that could stop this healing? So Naaman made the 100-mile trip to Samaria to see the king of Israel and to receive his healing. The king of this time was probably Jehoram. We are introduced to him at the end of, of 2 Kings chapter 1. Naaman brought the letter to the king, and at this stage in world history, as we said earlier, the two, Syria and Israel, were probably allies. But Jehoram was terrified. Jehoram read the letter, and, and he tears his clothes, and, and he was scared to death. He thought, oh, the king of Aram is going to come against us now. He's trying to provoke me to war. And so he took this as a threat, as an upcoming conflict. And so Jehoram doesn't know how to handle this. He, he feels inadequate. He's I, I can't, who am I? I can't heal this guy. I, I, there's no way I can heal him of leprosy. So he tears his robes, which was a, a, a signified a crisis and a national tragedy. So now where's Naaman going to go? He went to the king trying to find healing. The king has no answer. He's out of touch with reality. He doesn't understand what, what Naaman's trying to ask for. And so thankfully, we're introduced to Elisha. But verse 8, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. Now, we don't know how Elisha heard this. Maybe someone told him. As far as I know, he was in Samaria. But Amos 3.7 says, that God does nothing without revealing it first to his prophets. So somehow, Naaman heard, or Elisha heard about what was going on. Now, Naaman wanted physical cleansing, but he had a greater need. Underneath that uniform, he did have a, a body with leprosy, but he also had a soul that needed cleansing. You see, Naaman just didn't need physical cleansing. He needed spiritual cleansing. Because as we're going to see here in a few moments, he had... Uh, a lot of pride in his life. You see, the sin nature that you and I are all born with, it, it's terminal as well. And it leads to permanent separation from God. So all of us, just like Naaman, need cleansing. We need spiritual cleansing to our souls. And so I want to share with you two things that spiritual cleansing is not, and then one thing that it is. First, spiritual cleansing does not follow physical determination. Spiritual cleansing does not follow physical determination. Naaman was determined to be healed. He had the money. He had the letter. He had everything on his side. But yet, it was not enough to be healed. It was, it was inadequate. Uh, there was a man a number of years ago named Adam Wheeler. Adam was determined to be a student at Harvard University. But unfortunately, he didn't have the academic credentials to get into Harvard. So he lied about his academic resume he forged his resume, and somehow he got accepted. And he was a student there for a while. And Adam decided to apply to be a Rhodes Scholar. And he plagiarized his, his application, and, and an astute professor found him out and, and realized, this sounds a lot like this one over here. And Adam was discovered, 
And his whole scheme was discovered. He was kicked out of school and put on probation for 10 years. And he was determined to be a Harvard student, but he didn't have their credentials. See, his problem was not his determination. His credentials were the problem. You see, our problem is not about um, being determined to be saved. Our problem is our credentials. We have a soul that is sinful, and God cannot accept us like that. There has to be a payment, and that's what the Lord Jesus did for you, and he did it for me. And so physical cleansing or spiritual cleansing does not come by physical determination. And that's where Elisha enters our story, as we said a moment ago. Elisha enters. Elisha reaches out to the king, and Elisha is reaching out saying, hey, there's a God in Israel. You may not worship him, but there is a God, and I can tell you what, what he wants to say here. So he saves the king from embarrassment and potential warfare between another country. And here comes Naaman over to Elisha's house. So Naaman came with his horses, verse 9, and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Just imagine if the president of the United States in his motorcade came through your suburban neighborhood. That, that's the type of scene this would have been. Here comes a commander of the armies of Syria coming to Elisha's house. And you would think Elisha would just roll out the red carpet. He would go out there and say, oh, Commander Naaman, I'm so glad you're here. What can I do to serve you? I'm here for you. You just name it, and I'll do it. And as far as we know, Naaman still had all, the, all those hundreds of pounds of gold and silver and clothing. All that was still in those, in those chariots. But Elisha didn't even go to the door. He said, Elisha sent a messenger to him. Now, why, why was Elisha so aloof, so cool with him? And I believe Elisha was testing Naaman's faith. You see, Elisha's actions are going to reveal what's in Naaman's heart. Elisha knew that Naaman needed to be humbled before he could be healed. Elisha was unimpressed with Naaman. You see, when we have a high view of God, we, we love all people because all people are created in the image of God, but we're, we don't have to be impressed with people. Elisha is not impressed with Naaman. He's, he, he wants him to be healed, but he's, he's not impressed with him. He doesn't have to try to please him. Elisha had a simple message for him. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. That, that's what Naaman wanted. He wanted to be clean. Elisha says, here's how you do it. Elisha didn't say anything about gold or silver or clothing. Neither, by the way, did the, the, the young girl. She didn't say anything about clothing or, or gold or silver. That was, that was man-made. You see, unsaved people don't, don't know how to be saved. They, they, they don't know how to get healing. They, they don't know that you don't have to try to earn it, you, that you can't pay for it. They, they don't know that. That's why they need us to tell them. That's why we have the responsibility to tell them what, what Jesus has done. And so uh, Elisha understands also he doesn't have to be there for this miracle to happen. Elisha, Elisha has walked with God long enough that he knows he can send him away and God can heal him whether he is there or not. Elisha's not indispensable. God can use anybody. He can work whether he's there or not. God will take care of your children when you're there or when you're not there. He's able to watch over them. He's able to protect them. He's able to watch, to look after your life as well. He's he's an all-powerful God. He's able to do that. Verses 11 and 12 reveal what was in Naaman's heart. 
His heart was full of pride. It was full of personal pride, and it was full of national pride. His, his personal pride is there in verse 11. You see where he says uh, he was furious at, at, the, at Elisha's words. But Naaman was angry. That word, he was, word means wrathful towards man. He was wrathful toward Elisha. He was angry. I, what, you're not going to come out here and talk to me? I'm, a, I'm an official. I'm a decorated military officer. You're not going to come address me? He was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot. Apparently there was just a localized spot of leprosy at this time. But, but Naaman expected a public spectacle. He expected some type of public ritual. He'll come outside and other people will see this, and, and he'll just wave his hand, and, and, and I'll be healed, and I'll, I'll get what I wanted, and, and I'll just go away. That, that, that's what he expected. So it's personal pride. He's not, he's not getting what he wanted. And, but Elisha treated Naaman just like any other leper, and, and Naaman didn't like it. In verse 12, we see Naaman's national pride. The water sources of Syria, namely the Abana and the Farpar, were better than all the waters of Israel, is what he's saying. Are, are they not better than these you know, muddy, medi- mediocre waters of Israel? I, I've got the clear waters of Syria, that the water flows off the Lebanese mountains, and it's clear, and, and it's probably cold. And, and I, I've, if, if this is about water, I could have just stayed in Syria. And he's, he's angry, it's personal, and and. And national pride. My country is better than Israel. Why, why, you know, why are you going to send me 32 miles away to the Jordan River? I've already traveled 100 miles, Elisha. So he's, he's irritated. He's frustrated. He's not getting his way. Surely Naaman did not like Elijah's narrow-mindedness and rigidity. This leads us to our second point tonight. First point was spiritual cleansing does not follow physical determination. Secondly, spiritual cleansing does not follow physical preference. Spiritual cleansing does not follow spiritual preference. Naaman preferred the special treatment from Elisha. He preferred the waters of Syria. He preferred a public healing ceremony. But, but that's not how the cleansing would come. It wouldn't come according to his preference. We live in a day where people have very strong preferences. And I believe it's connected to the, the worldview known as postmodernism. Postmodernism years ago was an architectural term. Back in the 1960s, it, was, it began use because some people in the field of architecture didn't like the traditional style of formality, and, um, and it, they said it lacked variety. So they introduced this postmodern type of architecture. And so like the back of the house would be different from the front of the house. Uh, at the top of a building, you may have a big hole so that the idea was that at the top, there's nothingness. In fact, Courtney and I, were at, we had our rehearsal dinner in, a, in, a, in a, a building at the top. There was a big hole near the top. The whole point is that, well, at the top, there's just nothing. And that, that, uh, that philosophy has, has become a worldview where it's not just an architecture now, but you're, you'll, you hear that word postmodernism. And the whole idea is at the top, there's nothing. At the top, there's either no God, or if there is a God, he doesn't really care. He's not, he's not involved in the world. And so because he doesn't care, your truth is just as important as my truth. And so what I prefer is really what's important. And so that's why there's, in my mind, that's why there's such strong preferences 
today. People elevate their preference. But you see, Christianity is not about your preference. Spiritual rebirth does not come by preference. It comes by submission to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's how we come to the Father is through Christ, not what you prefer. And once you, once you and I become Christians, life is not about preferences. It's about submission. Jesus, in his humanity, did not prefer to go to the cross. He said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet, not, not what I will, what you will. Your will be done, Father. And so as Christians, our job is to submit to the will of the Father, is to submit our life to Jesus, not to, to live by preferences, but we'd live by Jesus. So be careful that you're not elevating your preferences above your love for Jesus. We love Christ, and then we submit our preferences to him and our love for other people. In verses 13 and 14, we see that Naaman had a change of heart. He had tried his way. His way was ended in anger and frustration, but there was another way, thankfully. So verse 13 introduces us to another group of characters. But his servants, that is Naaman's servants, came near. You see, it was, it was his wife's servant earlier in the story. Remember that? She introduced him to Naaman, to, told her about Elisha. Now it's his servants here are going to call him back to reality. It says, but his servants came near and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? They're, 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 they're saying, God, this is just common sense. You wanted to be clean. That's what he told you to do. He told you exactly how to do it. So why don't you just go do it? That's, that's, they're appealing to his common sense. Naaman, you want to be clean. He's told you how to be clean. Wash, did he not say, wash and be clean? And so we're not told that Naaman said anything, but we are told what he did. Verse 14 says, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. You see, Naaman decided, finally, I'm going to do things God's way. I'm going to obey what Elisha said, which is doing things God's way. I'm going to do it according to, according to the word of God. It was time to do things God's way. He'd done things his way. It didn't work out. And he had a terminal disease. It's only going to get worse. So after dipping in the Jordan seven times, it says that his flesh was restored like a little child, and he was clean. Now, dipping seven times in the water in Israel would have been a clear indication that this was a miracle of God. This wasn't, you know, the Jordan does not have magical water, but this was a miracle of God. God healed him. And I take this phrase, the last phrase, and he was clean, that has a dual focus. He was physically clean, and now he's spiritually clean. And the reason we know that is by his testimony. Look at his testimony in verses 15 and 17. He named himself, says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Then in verse 17, for from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord, but Yahweh. He is the one I will worship now. So he didn't just have a change of his flesh. He had a change of his heart. God cleansed him physically and spiritually. And so now here comes a foreigner and now he's saved because he obeyed the word of God. And one source said, perhaps his childlike skin reflected his childlike faith. This brings us to our third and final point tonight. Spiritual cleansing follows submission to God's way. Spiritual cleansing follows submission to God's way. 
Naaman finally submitted to God's way and he was cleansed. D.L. Moody on this passage once said this, he lost his temper, talking about Naaman, he lost his temper, he lost his pride, then he lost his leprosy. That is generally the order in which proud, rebellious sinners are converted. Naaman's life was radically changed. His salvation was really an indictment upon Israel. Because you had a, a foreigner coming into Israel with leprosy, who was supposed to be isolated, considered unclean, and he goes back to Syria saved and cleansed. It was an indictment upon the king of Israel, who, had, who was unsaved, had no clue what was going on, uh, this whole situation. He had no idea. It was a mystery to him. Here comes a foreigner who is saved. So this is an example in the Old Testament that anybody can be saved, that God loves all people if they will simply just obey him. Now, did you know that in the New Testament, the prophet Elijah, who we studied a while back, he's mentioned numerous times. But did you know there's only one time when, that Elisha was mentioned? And it's in relation to this story. It's in Luke chapter 4 and verse 27. Jesus said this, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You see, for, for Jesus, that was a word of judgment because he was speaking to the Jews. And they, they were saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, isn't he's just a, a teacher. It, they, they refused to receive him as the Messiah. He said, you know what? Years ago, someone came outside of Israel, a Gentile, and he went away cleansed. And all the people in Israel, none of those lepers were cleansed, only a foreigner. And it made the Jews furious. And what Jesus was saying is, salvation is open to anyone who will receive me. That's what Jesus was saying. Salvation is available for anyone who will recognize their sinful condition, confess Jesus as Lord, and you're saved. That's, that, it's that simple. You had some people in Jesus' day that had proximity to Jesus, in the temple with him, listening to him, yet they refused to receive him as Messiah. And he spoke this passage on, as judgment upon them because they refused to receive him. As application for our story tonight, let me ask you a question. Which person are you in this story? There's at least 10 characters in this story. There's servants, there's, there's kings, there's a commander. Which person are you? Are you like Naaman? Are you the one who on the outside it looks like everything's together, but underneath You've got a heart full of pride that needs forgiveness. Are you like the young Hebrew girl that you're in a foreign place, you're outside of your comfort zone, but you're quietly and lovingly serving God with compassion for others? Is that you? Or are you like the king of Israel who's completely out of touch with reality, who is fearful of other people, who lives in turmoil? Or are you like Elisha? who's not impressed with other people, but just wants to serve God and wants to see other people healed of their sinful condition. Which person are you? It's a good question to ask. Lord, just search my heart. Which person am I? Where, where, where do I see myself in here tonight? After the Duke of York met Lionel Logue, they, they met almost every day for about two or three months. And they continued meeting for the rest of the king's life, off and on. They developed a great friendship. 
And Logue was known for some interesting techniques. He would have his patients do these breathing techniques. He would have them sound out vowels. He would even have people sit on their diaphragm to strengthen it. And the years of speech therapy, thankfully, paid off for the Duke of York, who became the King George VI in 1936. The king often would call Logue to Buckingham Palace when it was time to give a speech. Logue would be right there beside him. Logue would, would take his manuscript and would, would go through and highlight, and, and, or he'd, he'd write in there, this is where you, know, you need to take a pause here. You need to take a breath here. He would, he would mark up his manuscript, and then the king would read it. And uh, all those items are available now with Logue's grandson. He has all those documents. But in 1952, the King George died. Just over three weeks after his death, his widow Elizabeth took out some paper, took her fountain pen, and she wrote Lionel Logue a letter. And this is what she said. I know better, I know perhaps better than anyone, just how much you helped the king. Not only with his speech, but through, but through that his whole life and outlook on life. I shall always be deeply grateful for all you did for him. You see, both Elizabeth and the king learned that if you're going to work with Lionel Logue, you've got to do things his way. And my friend, if we want God's forgiveness and power in our lives, we have to do things his way. We can't do things our ways. We have to submit to his way. Would you do that tonight? Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for... The Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that Jesus has made a way, that Jesus has redeemed us, he's purchased us as we sang earlier with the precious blood of Christ. And Father, I pray you'd forgive us when we try to come to you in our own efforts and our own ability. I pray you'd have mercy. And I pray for someone tonight who's maybe feels just like Naaman did, it's just trying to please you, trying doing everything they can, but they've never received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I pray, Lord, if that's the case, that even right now, just call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. God loves you. Father, I pray for others that they already are believers, but maybe they've been trying to have their way as well, that Jesus has not been Lord of their lives that they've elevated their preferences and their living life, how they want to live. But I pray that they would submit to you tonight. They would submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and that for the rest of their days, Jesus would be Lord of their life and they would live in humble obedience to you. Father, I thank you for your word and I, I just trust that you speak to hearts. Only you know our hearts. Would you minister to our hearts, Lord? draw us into a deeper walk with Jesus. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my friends, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us tonight. It's a blessing to be able to minister to you. We look forward to that every time we can share God's word with you. Pastor will be back Sunday. You'll want to listen to it. So tune in. God bless. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.